Yo, what up everybody? Welcome to the Inside Scoop on Mental Health with Bracken Lovell and Brandon Paxton, where we discuss mental health and focus on changing the stigma associated with mental illness. Remember, we're not professionals, but we do care about making a difference. We're here to give you the inside perspective from those living with mental health-related concerns. Please reach out to us on Instagram or Facebook with any questions, concerns, or suggestions for the show. And please don't ever hesitate to reach out and ask somebody for help if you're struggling, and that includes us. Enjoy this week's episode of the Inside Scoop on Mental Health. All right, welcome everybody to this week's episode. We're excited to be here and introduce today's guest, somebody who I really admire and I've looked up to for a while, um, a marriage and family therapist, Thurman Thomas, um, who is also kind of an entrepreneur um, and just a great person overall, a father, husband, um, and business owner. So I'm really excited for today's episode. Um, what, talk about yourself, Thurman. You know, who are you? What? You know, what do you do? What's your what's your background? Well, thanks. First of all, appreciate the opportunity to, to be here with you. This is fun and and uh, hopefully we can share some things that will reach some people today. So thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, a little bit about myself. I am um, a marriage and family therapist, like you said. I'm a, a clinical director of Ascend Counseling and Wellness. We have a few clinics in Utah. And uh, I haven't always been a therapist, though. You know, this is a, this is kind of a new turn in my adult life. Not super new, you know, within the last five or six years. But before that, I was an entrepreneur. I owned several businesses. Um, I was in marketing and advertising and real estate. And just came to a point in my life, my wife and I were sitting in the family room one night and, and saying, hey, we should be happier you know, we're making good money. We've got four beautiful kids, nice home, nice neighborhood. Why don't, why don't we feel more fulfilled? And we just had a good conversation that, that, that kind of just highlighted the point that we just didn't feel like we were fulfilling our purpose on the earth, truly. So we had some great conversations about purpose and about some of my, um, talents and abilities and desires in life. And uh, three weeks later, I was enrolled back in school as an old dude and uh, finished a bachelor's degree in psychology and then went on to get a master's degree in marriage and family therapy. Had a couple more kids in the process. So we, we ended with six kids through that process and ended up selling our companies and jumping in full force to uh, the counseling world. So that's a little bit about my professional background. What do you mainly focus on in your line of work with therapy? <laughs> Who do you mostly deal with? Good question. Um, and I get asked that quite often. When you hear marriage and family therapist, you automatically assume that the majority of the work I do would be with couples. And it is a good, it's a big chunk of what I do. I do see an, a lot of couples who are coming in mostly to just try to improve their marriages. Uh, but probably like 60% of what I do is individual counseling. Things like depression and anxiety, you know, focus, ADHD type stuff, uh, perfectionism, addiction. But about 40% of what I do is just helping couples improve their lives and improve their interactions and, and hopefully save the relationship in some cases. So a, a pretty good mix, but, uh, 
I, I sure love working with couples. That's why I chose the degree I did. It's because I believe in marriage. I believe in working hard to, to salvage something that obviously was at one point amazing, right? And getting back to that and, and learning some skills to help people really just function better in their relationships. So love that part of what I do. So kind of an interesting question, Brandon and I were talking about, um, have you seen any differences since the COVID, since the COVID-19 virus? Um, you know, depression and anxiety are some major ones. Um, I would, I would assume, I know you're not supposed to assume, but I would assume maybe even in couples counseling, you know, you're probably seeing some spikes there. I mean, what are you seeing? Yeah, good question. I think generally when people are more stressed out and anxious, other parts of their life suffer, right? Um, and my training as a marriage and family therapist is really in systems theory. So we look at the entire system and say, you know, what's causing this, this, these problems in the relationship all of a sudden? You've been getting along, doing well, and, and now all of a sudden there's more fighting, there's more irritation, there's more hurt feelings. A lot of that's just because stress is higher. So I, I don't know that I've necessarily seen more couples coming in, uh, but definitely I've been hearing more relationship problems resulting just from the heightened stress and anxiety that people have right now. They're, you know, they're trying to figure out how to get their kids schooling done. They're trying to earn a living. They're trying to go shopping without catching the, the Rona. You know, I mean, it's, it's just a, it's a stressful time. Mm -hmm. So that, that sometimes can bleed into the relationship. Yeah. We've got a lot more teachers nowadays than we used to have, huh? Yeah. And they don't want to be teachers either. <laughs> no, the pay is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so I was looking online and one law firm stated that their caseload has increased 25% since the lockdown in mid-March. Now you said a lot of it you think is due to stress. Do you think any of it has to do with couples being locked in with each other more than they're used to? It's a, it's a great, it's, it's a, an, a, an, ob, uh, an obvious correlation, I think. You know, the statistics have always been pretty clear that, that one of the most difficult times in a marriage is the time when uh, the empty nest happens. The kids are gone on their own and, and the careers are winding down because you've, you know, you've had 30 years of just full-blown life purpose, taking care of kids and soccer practices and earning money. And then all of a sudden you're retired and the kids are gone and you wake up next to somebody who's a stranger now because you've both been so busy with life. Same kind of thing that's going on right now. Now, in my area, we haven't seen a lot of that just because most people still have incomes. They're still, they're still working. Not a lot of people have been forced to stay home. So, but I can certainly see that as an issue if there's a lot of joblessness. All of a sudden, you're, you're thrown together 24-7 and you feel trapped and stuck. Now, a lot of that's preventable. If you're working on your relationship then you're never a stranger to your, to your partner. You know, if you take that time and, and don't let life get in the way, then it really shouldn't be a problem. Being, being trapped with my wife for two weeks sounds amazing to me, right? That's because I want to be with her. We work on our relationship. 
Um, but for some who, who maybe through no fault of their own, they get so wrapped up in life and taking care of the kids and, and earning a living and whatever it is that they, they forget to take care of the most important relationship in their life. And that's the one with their partner. So what is some advice that you could give those struggling uh, during these times of quarantine where um, they're not necessarily used to being with each other so much and they're going through these things that you talked about. They're stressed because they don't have income. They're stressed because they're just not necessarily used to this situation. What advice could you give to strengthen that relationship in this time? Good question. I think that it starts with the individual, honestly. What, what a lot of times happens when we have relationship problems is because we start to take things personally. You know, so if my spouse is stressed out because of finances or or because she's dealing with the kids all day and and she's a little more maybe snippy, irritable, agitated because of that stress and anxiety. Right. I can choose whether or not I take that personally. So that's the first thing that I say to all couples is let's just try not to take our, our partner's behaviors, everything they say and do, let's try not to take that personally and let's instead try to find out where they're hurting, where they're struggling. So that's maybe the first set of advice. Number two is you can still have some autonomy. You know, give your spouse some freedom to have some time to themselves to pursue the things they need to pursue. Just because you're both home doesn't mean you have to be hip to hip the whole time. So give each other a little bit of space, you know, unwind, uh, give yourself some time. So that's another thing to kind of be mindful of is uh, give each other some space. Uh, other, this maybe is the most important advice is try to find some normalcy, right? Try to create that, whether that's through structure you know, maybe adjusting the way you do things. I know for my wife and I, we've, we've made it a, a real solid effort to get out every Friday night to do some date time. Now, what does that date look like? Drive through at Chick-fil-A, go find a place to park, eat our, eat our food, drive around a bit, talk, hold hands, and go home. It's nothing exciting, but we're making an effort to connect and and, and so create some sense of normalcy. Try to, try to create some patterns and, and habits that make it feel like, hey, this really isn't so bad. There's a few ideas. I, really, I, I like that last point that you made about, um, you know, making that effort. And, and then also your point about the autonomy. Um, maybe talk about that a little bit more, the autonomy, because that's something that I've noticed. Um, at least in my surroundings with the marriages that I know that people struggle with. Um, oftentimes I think it ends up being, you know, whether it's the husband or the wife that works full time, the other one struggles with that autonomy or, or whatever, you know, maybe um, I've always been in the belief that it's good to kind of have your own things to do. Um, could you talk about that? You know, what, where do you find that? How do you find that autonomy? Does that make sense? Yeah. That's a great question. So the term we use in family systems is enmeshment. You've heard the term codependency before, same kind of idea. When you feel like your life has to be totally wrapped up in someone else's, we call that enmeshment. You're too close emotionally, you're too close physically, 
and that's unhealthy, right? Because when you're totally enmeshed with another human being, uh, then you lose yourself and you're to totally affected by what that other person does. So autonomy is a necessary component to real healthy relationships. You think about it, we're all born with a, a very unique set of genetic coding, right? That creates our temperament, it's who we are, things we love, things that, that matter to us, a certain way of seeing the world. And just because you've found somebody you want to spend your life with doesn't mean you're automatically going to start seeing things the same way as them. Look, I love steak and potatoes. My wife loves sushi. That's never going to change. I'm not going to all of a sudden start to love sushi just because I love my wife. So autonomy is normal. It's natural and it's healthy so that we can be close, but not intertwined. And we need that, right? In order to feel like we're an independent individual in a relationship, we need to pursue our own interests and hobbies. We need to pursue our own likes and, and have that freedom and support each other in that, right? Do I love you enough to let you go do some things that you want to do, to pursue some things you want? What prevents that autonomy sometimes is just insecurity. We feel threatened by the, the, the hobbies and interests of our spouse, so we don't allow it to happen because we're afraid that they would rather do that than be with us. And, and really, that's at the heart of most relationship problems is this belief that our spouse doesn't love us, that we're not enough for them. And where does trust play into that? Well, trust is an interesting thing. There's two sides to that, right? There's the side that says, I don't trust you because you've broken that trust. So if, if, if my spouse has done something to break trust, if they've, there's been infidelity or something like that, that's one thing. But if I'm not trusting because of my own insecurities, then that's a personal problem. If I'm not secure enough in me, in the relationship, then I'm going to see everything as a threat that my spouse does. And so in those situations, I try to do a little bit of individual work to say, what can we do to build you up? So you feel good about who you are. And then that trust seems to be a natural component of that. So it, it, a lot of times we say it's trust in them. But what I find it's really it's trust in self. Do I trust me to be secure in this relationship? Right. I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, hopefully that's connecting. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I know a lot of our listeners are fairly young um a lot of them i'd say are even newlyweds and i i've noticed personally there's a lot of divorce among newlyweds i mean between three to eight months i'm seeing a lot of people that i know uh get divorced just after those few months have you seen that in your line of work yeah, a lot of young couples come in that, that first six months and, and they're feeling like, gosh, you know, I made a mistake. This is really hard. The truth is, yeah, first year's tough, right? Because you, you start to see not just the good stuff you show each other on dates when you're courting. You see all the best in each other. Now, all of a sudden, you're three months in and you're starting to realize that, you know, guys are gross, 
and sometimes we're stinky and, and dirty and and sometimes girls women do things that it's like whoa you know I, I didn't expect that that first year is hard because you there's a lot of differences a lot of conflict I mentioned earlier the statistics of, of some of the toughest times of marriage can be empty nest really the two most difficult or divorce prone times in a marriage are the first year and the empty nest period those are the hardest parts because you're you're on your own it's just the two of you so I do see a lot of that and and honestly I think part of it is because people have a a set of unrealistic expectations about what marriage is to begin with they're comparing it to the bliss of dating and courting and the excitement of that and then all of a sudden you've got to pay rent and decide on where to eat out and and when to have kids and how to spend the money and it gets real and it gets difficult and because we're not prepared for that difficulty hits us in the face and we think gosh this is this isn't worth it but I say to those young couples hang on you know you get through the the hardest year it gets better most of what I see in that first year is, is that we just don't know how to communicate through the conflict. So we just need to learn how to talk through things instead of react. Uh, so I do see a lot of that, though. Do most couples come to you with their mind set on, hey, we're going to get a divorce? Or are they usually more open to, hey, we're having problems. We want to fix this so that it doesn't lead to divorce. Typically, I don't see both of them coming in, settling on divorce. It's, it's usually both of them want to work on it, or there's one of the two that's like, I'm done. Usually, it isn't both. Um, and, and that's the first hurdle we have to get across. If you're coming to couples counseling, the first decision that has to be made is, are we all in or are we all out? Um, because it, it's pretty tough to work on a marriage if they've already decided. If it's just a, well, we just wanted to come in to say we did it, the likelihood of it working out isn't that good. You've got to be motivated to do the hard and uncomfortable stuff that it takes to fix things. But usually it is one or the other. Uh, either they both really want to work on it, save the marriage, or there's one of them that's it's having a hard time and feeling like divorce is the best option. I don't know if there is a right answer to this, but would you say that there's a, there's a point where it's like, okay, divorce is the right answer for you guys. And how do you tell where that point is or what that point is? Really good question. And I, I try to never make that decision with, you know, for my clients. I can't, it's not my life. You know, obviously that it sounds weird to even say, but, uh, I have had couples say, is this salvageable? Should we even be trying? My answer, that's always yes. Unless it's unsafe. There's abuse of some kind. You know, emotional, sexual, physical, coercion, abuse. Um, in those cases, if, if, if there's not a real drastic and abrupt change to those behaviors, then yeah, that's, that's when I say it's time to get you safe and get you out of this marriage. Uh, but for the most part, the only time I would say that, you know, divorce is, other than those times, the only time I would say divorce is kind of like the right option is if you just realize that 
neither one of you are willing to make the changes necessary to make it a happy relationship. If you just have made the decision that I know what I need to do to make this better, but I'm not willing to do those things. Well, then, then you've got you've to turn each other loose and help you go find some real happiness and joy in life. With that in mind, um, you know, I, I, can, I can only speak for my own relationship, but I definitely agree that the first year was the hardest, the first year of marriage. Um, and it does take a lot of work. And what I found interesting was, you know, even marrying somebody who grew up in the same town as me, you're throwing two completely different backgrounds together and that's tough. Um, even though you think they're the same, even though you know them forever, it's tough. So, you know, you know, with that in mind, what kind of advice would you give for those who are dating or courting that are thinking about marriage? How can they transition into marriage better? Yeah. So earlier I talked a little bit about expectations and I think that's the first place to start. Um, there's some really good research out there by the Gottman Institute that was started about 40 years ago. The Gottmans had a desire to find out what really makes relationships work and maybe what, what leads to demise, what leads to disillusion or divorce. And over the last 40 years, they've studied about 4,000 couples. And when they started, there was an assumption or a hypothesis that Relationships that tend to fail fail because there's more conflict in those relationships. It's important that we define what conflict is. Conflict in this context is a difference of opinion, a reason to disagree. That's what conflict really means. And so they thought when they started, hey, probably going to be more conflict or reasons to disagree, differences in the relationships that don't do well. But they found pretty soon that, statistically speaking, that's not the case. All relationships across the board, good relationships, bad relationships, which they call masters and disasters, they find that the amount of conflict is statistically equal. So you're right. You come into a marriage, you're different. Even if you're brought up in the same town, with the same culture, the same religion even, you're two very different human beings with a separate genetic code, different experiences, different parenting, gender differences that, that, are, that are big and pronounced in relationships sometimes. So the amount of conflict isn't the problem. So coming into a marriage, I think it's important to realize that, hey, we're not going to agree on a lot of stuff. And that's normal. It's normal to not agree. It's normal to not see to eye, eye to eye on everything. It isn't about that. What it's about is learning the skills to manage that conflict, to learn how to communicate through your differences, to learn how to realize that I can, I can disagree and still love you. And I give you that same freedom. You can disagree with me, and I know you still love me. We can be kind and loving and connecting even in our differences and disagreements. And so that's the advice I would give is come into the relationship with no false belief that just because you're compatible in a relationship standpoint doesn't mean you're not going to have major conflict and disagreements. But you can get through it. 
you can learn how to navigate through those differences. And if you do it well, those things can be super connecting because you realize, hey, even though this person doesn't agree with me, they're still here. They still love me. And that's a pretty awesome feeling. So manage expectations. And number two, I would say all couples should do a little bit of work on communication. You know, get some coaching, get some training, get some counseling on how to communicate effectively through conflict. Uh, if I had known the things I know now, that first year, it would have been a lot more fun. Right, 100%. Communication is so important. Absolutely. What kind of a role does children play in a relationship? So, I mean, you're talking about that first year in a marriage is extremely hard. Typically, I mean, not always, but typically there's not kids involved in those, those, that first time in marriage. But then it's a completely different relationship as soon as you start bringing kids into it. Do you have anything to say on that? Yeah, so right, that first year should be amazing. There's, <laughs> there's, no, there's no kids getting in the way, coming in the middle of the night. There's no excuses not to connect intimately because there's not a, a two-year-old in between you with their foot in your face right? That first year should be, should just be incredible because you're free to go and do. Uh, kids coming into the mix does, it does change things, of course, just because your attention shifts. Some of the challenges that people face when they start having children is, is that lack of physical intimacy connection. Sometimes that can take a while to kind of reintegrate back into the marriage when children are born you're exhausted, right? Cause you're not sleeping well at night. You're getting up, changing diapers, making bottles, uh, uh, comforting a, a bad dream. Um, so, so you're exhausted. Um, another thing that can happen with kids coming in is one of the, one of the spouses, whoever it is, that's, that's primarily taking care of the kids. Sometimes that takes a lot of their time and attention. And so the other spouse can feel like, um, I'm not a priority anymore. It's all about the kids. So there's no time for me. There's no interest in me. But at the same time, if you both make an effort to be totally involved in those kids' lives, um, boy, there's just not many things in life that are more beautiful and rewarding than raising children together than seeing them grow and develop. And if you can do that as a team, support each other in those efforts, that's really important. At the same time, one of the problems I see that happens often when kids come into the mix is, I mentioned this earlier, is we forget about the relationship. We're so caught up in raising the kids that we forget that we have to work on the first relationship, and that was the one with our spouse. And that can cause some resentment, right? At some point it's like, hey, there's no time for me anymore. It's all about the kids. And maybe the husband starts to resent the kids a little because the wife quote unquote loves them more, meaning they spend more time with mom than with dad. Uh, they're, they're getting in the way at, at, at night with, with connecting physically. So we've got to make sure one thing that I just want to, really reiterate with people is you have to spend time working on the relationship once kids come into it. 
get the kids sleeping in their own crib as soon as possible. I have a lot of couples that come in and one of their major issues is there's a three-year-old in the bed with them every night. You know, that that's impossible to connect with your spouse if there's a three-year-old in between you. And in some cases, it's a nine-year-old that's never learned how to sleep in their own bed. So get, get the kids in their own beds as soon as possible. Make sure you're scheduling a date night at least once a week without the kids. It's just prioritize the relationship. And then when it's, it's time to be with the kids, be with the kids. Make that a priority. And, and it's, it's a wonderful thing so long as we don't forget each other in the process. So, I mean... I know a little bit about systems theory just from um, intro to marriage and family therapy. And, and they talk a lot about triangulation, right? Um, and a little bit about the best, the best example that I heard or the best um, analogy, I guess, is of the thermostat, you know, where you have your, you know, the family has this thermostat that wants to stay at a certain temperature and you have your negative feedback and your positive feedback. Well, once kids come into the picture, you know, you mentioned that sometimes there's, there might be a little bit of jealousy or whatever it is. Sometimes that triangulation can happen or, um, you know, teenagers, you know, teenagers, they start acting different they start getting hormones, you know, talk about that. What, you know, what, how important is communication then? And, and what kind of advice do you give parents there? Yeah, I know you actually do a lot of parenting classes. So that's one reason I'm interested to hear that. Yeah. So you, you bring up a couple of key points. One is this idea that, that that thermostat you talked about, when systems or families, a family is a system. And so when we say systems theory, we're really talking about a family system in this context. Um, family systems like normalcy. We call it homeostasis. Mm-hmm. We try not to use the word normal because sometimes homeostasis is dysfunctional. You know, if, if the way we, we are all the time, that's homeostasis, that doesn't mean it's good, right? Sometimes there's some really, really unhealthy patterns in a family, but that's just the way it is. And, and, it, and a system doesn't like to change. They don't, they don't like adjustments because change is hard. So even if the family system is a little bit dysfunctional, uh, oftentimes individuals in that system will work to keep it the way it is because that's easier than changing. So that's one thing we have to identify when we talk about couples work, family work is let's identify the patterns that even though they're normal for you guys might not be healthy and talk about ways to break those patterns, to change those cycles. So that's the concept of kind of homeostasis. Now, when triangulation comes in, really what triangulation is, is it's like two against one. That's the easiest way to kind of describe what happens. Um, And that can happen with a teen that's maybe acting out or a couple that's not getting along. Here's where I see it the most often is the couple isn't getting along. Mom and dad aren't, they're fighting. And one of them will recruit another family member to get on their team. You know, they'll recruit a child. Well, you just need to tell your dad that, that he needs to whatever. Or they'll, they'll recruit a, a parent, an in-law. You know, maybe the, the, the husband will divulge things to his mom 
and pull her into it. And then we have two against one, two people that are kind of teaming up against a third. Now, triangulation is, is just devastation to relationships um, because you feel singled out. And oftentimes you're bringing somebody into this, to this conflict that has no business being in the middle of it especially in the case of bringing a child in between the two parents. It happens a lot in divorce parents. They, they're, they're fighting, they're divorcing, and they talk bad about the other one to the children. You know, that, to, to try to make them feel like, hey, I've got somebody on my team. Well, that's devastating to a child. They don't want to pick sides. They don't want to choose who's right or who's wrong. Uh, dad loves me more, mom loves me more. Uh, dad's wrong, mom's wrong. They don't want to be in the middle of that, and it's a horrible place for them to be. So triangulation is is just really traumatic for for children, especially. So on to the kind of the idea of what's it like raising a teen, right? Kind of a, a little bit of a separate issue, but it's true. Teens change. You know, a lot of things happen to a teenager. You mentioned hormones. There's also some drastic changes in brain function. The prefrontal cortex goes through a, a massive pruning during that time of, of adolescent development where that decision center of the brain, that, that impulse control area, that creativity and compassion area of the brain goes through a major cutting back or pruning. And so teenagers have a harder time sometimes with impulse control, with compassion, with understanding choices and consequences, uh, flexible thinking and those kinds of things. So there's, there's oftentimes a lot of conflict between parents and their teens because of those drastic changes. And I've learned the hard way that when you're raising children, one of the things that's most important is to give your kids room to be emotional. And so just to give a little bit of advice uh, or counsel on, in that arena, um, we're kind of, at least, at least I was, and, and as far as Utah is concerned and, and some of the cultural stuff here, it seems to have been the case with most people I've talked to that we're kind of afraid of emotions. We're very dismissive of emotions. I mean, you just picture maybe a, a five-year-old little girl coming into dad and crying about, her older brother uh, taking her Barbie and throwing it and the little girl's crying and sad. But what do you imagine the dad's going to say? First thing, stop crying. You know, and that's true for boys and girls. Uh, parents seem tend to be really, really uncomfortable with the emotions. And so we try to dismiss them. Calm down, relax. It's not that big a deal. You shouldn't be crying about this. And we tell the kids, knock off the emotion, dismiss that emotion. That's a real problem, right? Because what do you feel like when somebody dismisses your emotion? You feel weak and you feel crazy. I shouldn't be sad. Well, so what does that mean if I am? Does that mean I'm broken? Does that mean I'm crazy? Does that mean something's wrong with me because I'm crying about this Barbie that my brother took? So, so, so one of the things that I've had to learn the hard way is get comfortable with emotions, with difficult emotions. Let your kids feel. 
Now, what five-year-old wouldn't be sad about losing her Barbie? It's important. If somebody took your car, you'd be sad. You know, losing things is hard. So, so try to get comfortable with your kids expressing those emotions. And instead of dismissing the emotions, acknowledge the emotion. Help your child identify what they're feeling. Are you angry? Are you sad? Are you afraid? Tell me about it. Validate it. I can see why you're sad. It hurts to lose things. When somebody takes our stuff, that's hard. You're not crazy for feeling this. This is good that you feel this way. It's normal. It's right. And you have every right to feel emotion. So that's been a life-changing thing for me and my children, especially as they get a little bit older, so that they feel safe coming to mom and dad and saying, hey, I'm having some difficulty here. I'm struggling. I'm sad. I'm angry. I'm afraid about something. If we dismiss those emotions from the time they're little, they won't come to us when they're teens. It won't feel safe to them. They'll feel like they're getting lectured. They'll feel like we're just trying to fix it. Well, the true fix is letting them process those emotions and learning from them. So communication, learning how to help navigate, we call that emotional coaching. It's also a Gottman model. We, we, if we learn how to help them through that emotion, coach them through it, then the likelihood of their success is exponentially, incre exponentially increased. In fact, they found that one of the greatest predictors of success is emotional intelligence. So as parents, my, my greatest advice is learn how to be good emotional coaches. And that's all about communication and, and good empathetic listening. So uh, emotions are a huge part of any relationship. You know, you, you focused on emotions with between you and your children, but how about emotions between you and your partner? I mean, when you get in an argument, there's always two sides to that argument, but it's hard to see the other person's point of view a lot of the times. And it's, it's easy to build up that anger and get frustrated with the other people, the other person that you're arguing with because they don't see your point of view, but you're also not taking the time to see their point of view. How do emotions play into a relationship between your partner and between arguments? Good question, right? You, we've talked about the fact that we both come into the relationship with differences, a unique world perspective, so to speak, a paradigm. The way we view the world is different. You said the word perspective, and that's really what that means, right? We have different perspectives or a different point of view. Now, the first problem with that is if we take it personally. You know, I, I, if, if I can't allow my spouse to see things the way she wants to see them without taking that personally, I'm going to have major issues, right? We have to allow our partners the freedom to see things the way they see them. One of the ways I illustrate that in my sessions is I'll have both, uh, both, both parties look at a picture on the wall. I'll have them just look at this painting above my desk. I'll give them 30 seconds and I'll say, I want you to look at this picture and think about how you feel, what you see, what stands out to you as you look at this picture. And then after 30 seconds or so, I say, okay, tell me what you see. 
and the the husband will describe what he sees well it's i see 14 trees it looks like it's fall maybe there's some some water on the ground you know maybe a very objective perspective of what he sees and then the wife will say something like well gosh you know it looks really dark in the forefront it makes me feel kind of sad but i see light through the end of the trees and so it makes me think that there's hope ahead like we're talking vastly different descriptions of the same exact painting. And then I say, okay, well, gosh, you know, you guys described it so differently. Who's right? Which one of you is right? And the answer is we both are. We see it how we see it. So that's kind of the first step of eliminating some of the unnecessary emotion is just realizing that that's okay. It's okay if you see it different. It's okay if I see it different. A lot of times those emotions come get really flooded when we're so focused on forcing our perspective on someone else and having them not be able to receive it, to accept it. If we want to get through those emotions, we, we call that flooding. When our emotions get so intense that we can't communicate effectively anymore. We're too angry. We're too threatened. It's too much emotion that's flooded. If we're not worried about enforcing our perspective on the other person, those emotions typically don't get out of hand. So it isn't about saying, you have to see it the way I see it. It's about help me understand why you see it the way you do. And that's connecting, right? Communication is much more about seeking understanding than it is about trying to enforce understanding on force understanding on someone else. Help me understand why you see it that way, because maybe, maybe that's maybe that's the clue we need to really resolve this. Synergy is a big part of making a relationship work. And if we can, instead of trying to get get them to think the way we do, we say, how do we both think and how can we create unity and harmony in that, in our differences, in our conflict? Uh, when, when we're trying to win, the emotions get out of hand. When we're trying to understand, the emotions are regulated and peace comes into the relationship. I hope that makes sense that you hear the difference there between winning and understanding is just vast. And earlier you mentioned that typically an obvious reason for divorce or a good point for divorce in a relationship is uh, when there's abuse, whether it's emotionally, physically, any sort of abuse, um, a lot of the time the answer is to get out of that situation. But I, I know that in times it's really hard for that person that is being abused to seek help, to get out of that relationship. A lot of it has to do with them being scared. Um, so what can you say to that point to those maybe that are listening that are going through an abusive relationship or have just come out of an abusive relationship? Well, the first thing is, is it, it is very scary to get help uh, because maybe, maybe they don't feel like they can do any better. They don't, maybe they feel like maybe they deserve the abuse. So they're that sense of self 
needs to be helped. Um, but I would say start with looking around your community to see what resources are available. Most communities have really good resources in place to help people who are in an abusive relationship. Facilities, um, centers, uh, nonprofit organizations that can that can really help take somebody out of, a, of an abusive situation and make sure they're safe and taken care of. So I would say start there is just kind of see what resources are out there. And if you can catch it early on, the better, right? If you start to see signs of that abuse creeping into the relationship, maybe they're getting a little more physical than you're comfortable with. Maybe they're using too much criticism, name calling. Maybe they're using sex or intimacy as, as a way to coerce or punish or threaten. You know, those, these are signs that it's time to start reaching out maybe for some help. And so reach out to a, a counselor, reach out to um, some of these local resources that are available. Um, don't buy into the lie that they'll all of a sudden get better. You know, don't, don't hang on to that. If they get better, great but you don't need to suffer through it. Don't tell yourself this lie that, well, they can change. Well, of course they can, but will they? And in the meantime, get yourself safe and taken care of. Um, it just takes a lot of courage. And I would say, sit down, gather your resources, see what's available, who in your family system or your friend system or your church system, can you lean on for some help and support? And really it just takes reaching out to that first person to get help. and. And that's, that's what I recommend. You just gotta, you, you gotta love yourself enough to get yourself safe. So that with that, there's a little bit of a stigma, I think. Um, you mentioned a few times, you talked about culture, the culture that you've seen with um, recognizing and speaking up about emotions, you know, um, allowing ourselves to feel emotions. And then now you're talking about this, reaching out and getting help. Um, uh, where, where, what kind of a stigma do you see with that? You know, culturally there is, we see that all the time. And, and what do you have to say about that? Did you have any stigma with it going into the profession? Did, was there anything unforeseen um, as opposed to what you see now? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the part of that issue with us as a culture being so uncomfortable with emotions when you're emotionally dysregulated to a point where it, it turns into depression and anxiety, well, then you, if, if there's absolutely a stigma there because you think I'm broken, you know, I, I must be crazy to feel this way. And so that's the first stigma is that we think that if we feel difficult emotions and they get overwhelming for us, that somehow we're, we're broken. We're without, without hope. That we're crazy. I hear that all the time. You're going to think I'm so crazy, people coming into my office. No, I don't. I just, I think you've got some hard things going on and some emotions that are difficult. Um, so there's a stigma with this idea that emotions are wrong, so I'm crazy if I feel intensely. Now, there's also this human desire to protect our own ego. Most of us are already feeling like we're not enough like we're broken in a little ways, like we're not good enough, we're not smart enough, we're not attractive enough, we're not financially independent enough, whatever it is, there's a lot of I'm not enoughs 
that's just naturally part of who we are. And so we've got these, these kind of broken, fledgling egos that are struggling to just say, uh, I'm good enough to, to survive, to, to succeed, to excel in something. And so admitting, coming to the point where we're, we're going to now have to admit that there's a big enough problem that I need help, right? That seems very damaging to that ego that's already struggling. I think that's where a lot of the stigma comes from is this, this our desire to protect what little bit of ego we have, that we actually have to admit that we need help because we're trying to preserve a sense of self to some extent. So is it weak to reach out for help? No, it's empowering. It's, it's recognizing that this is normal for people to have mental illness at times, to struggle with depression, anxiety, relationship problems. It, it isn't norm, It isn't abnormal. It's absolutely normal to struggle with those things. It's hard to reach out for help because, quite frankly, as a kid, when we tried to do that with our parents, we usually got a lecture. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going to get a lecture if you reach out for help with a professional. You're going to get good guidance and counsel, an empathetic ear. You're going to get validation and you're going to get some coaching to help you navigate those difficult times so you can be better and then you can help others with the same issues. It's really empowering. It's, it's really, it's really an amazing process. Um, It's vulnerable to ask for help, but as Brene Brown says, vulnerability is the same as courage. So be courageous. Love yourself enough to to improve, to get help, to get through it. So on the other side of that, how do you typically address the individual that that's causing the abuse? I mean, a lot of times the driving force behind abuse has to do with a mental illness. And I mean, you could even go up to that individual, speak with them and and they truly love their partner, but they can't necessarily control their actions due to this mental illness. How do you address that? Great question. You know, first and foremost, we get, we get everybody safe and then we start to address the, the, the problems in the system that are leading to this danger, these, these maladaptive behaviors. Um, in the state of Utah, and I'm sure it's similar throughout the United States, therapists who work in domestic violence situations go undergo specialized training that helps them address those concerns, not just with the victim, but the person who is doing the abusing, right? So we, we do, we, we want to help that person rehabilitate. We want to help them address the issues that are leading to those maladaptive behaviors because you're right on. Usually it isn't because they don't love the person. They just don't know how to regulate their emotions and behaviors so we can work with that person and help them overcome some of those challenges and problems. A lot of times it's generational. You know, they've they've been abused. That's how they learned how to handle difficulty. Um, So we've got to break some of those transgenerational systems, cycles uh, that that have kind of carried through. So... um, there's a lot of work that can be done there and people can change, they can grow, they can overcome those challenges. Uh, so as a therapist, we have to look at, at, at all the individuals in the system and say, 
they all matter. They all deserve help. And, and that can make a huge difference. Uh, you said that it's oftentimes intergenerational. How often is addiction part of that substance abuse? Well, it's, it's almost a guarantee. Um, one of the tools we use, you may have heard of this before, is called a genogram. A lot of people have heard of family trees. A genogram is a family tree with more detail. And, and you, you list things in the family tree like addiction, mental illness, um, different things like that. And it's just almost a guarantee if you find that addiction is in a family system, you can follow it up the family tree. Now that's, that's kind of scary for some people. They think, well, what hope do I have then? Because then it looks like it's genetic and there is definitely a genetic component. And we don't probably don't have time to get into this today, but there's also a, a really promising and, and hopeful strain of science that deals with what's called epigenetics and this idea that we can actually change some of those some of those intergenerational things that are passed down we can make a difference by making changes in ourselves and we can kind of stop that cycle from continuing on with our own children if we get the help we need uh, so it, it's both it's both scary to see how some of those genetic things can pass down, but also at the same time hopeful to know that we can change that. We can make a difference. Kind of on a more positive note, we've talked a lot about the struggles of relationships, marriage, family relationships. Um, let's hear some of the positive. What's your, what's your favorite thing about marriage? What's your favorite thing about having a family? Uh, those relationships with your kids and with your wife. Yeah, thank you. Well, first of all, I, I've seen very few couples come into my office that can't, that, that aren't able to work through the challenges. I see a lot of successes, way more success stories than, than, than not. Most people, if they come in willing to make changes, can fix things. They can work it out. They can learn new skills uh, to find happiness and joy in their relationship. I just, to me, the most fulfilling relationship is in my life, um, next to my relationship with God, is my relationship with my spouse, and then my relationship with my children. They just, it's what makes life worth living for me. What I love about marriage is that I have a best friend to spend time with, somebody to dream with somebody to plan with and achieve and grow with, somebody to cry with and laugh with. I've got a partner. I've got somebody that knows me and still loves me and, and, and me to them as well, me to her as well. And as you see children come into that family system, it's, it's hard to describe. I, I, I've not been able to find the appropriate words to describe the joy of having a child with the person you love and to see them grow and learn and develop and, and hopefully be a little better than, than I am. It's just, it's just such a wonderful experience. Some of the hardest times are in relationships, but without that, you know, you wouldn't feel the intense joy at the same time. 
I tell people all the time that you, you probably wouldn't be so angry with your spouse if you didn't love them. You know, the fact that you're so upset with each other, you're so triggered by each other, to me is an example of how much you must love each other. Because if you didn't, you just wouldn't care. There's nothing more fulfilling than connecting, and we need that. Human beings need that human connection, that, that sense of belonging to someone, with someone. And, and I just absolutely love it. I love seeing my children grow, seeing my spouse achieve and, and overcome. And I love the idea that we can sit on the porch and envision our future together. Uh, it's just fantastic. That's incredible. I think that's a, a good note to end on, uh, a good positive note. And um, it's easy to see that how happy you are in doing that, that, you know, you're very rewarded with in, in your life. And, and I love that. And it shows in your career because I know you're very, you're very successful at what you do and very good at it. Um, so on behalf of everybody, thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, and you know, just, just a quick shout out, go, go check out Thurman, um, www.thurmanthomas.com or on Facebook, um, ascend count counseling and wellness, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. Go check him out. Um, amazing guy. What does the future look like for you, Thurman? You, you mentioned dreams with your wife and your kids. What, what's, what is the now leading into the future look like? Well, I think setting up systems professionally with my clinics to be able to, to, to help more people, you know, so we're, we're looking at expanding our clinics in the new cities to bringing in new talent with therapists that are coming out of school uh, to just be able to, to take what we've learned, what's worked with us and, and expand that out to help as many people as possible to see our children grow and successfully launch into adulthood and find happiness and joy in their own relationships and life plans and to prepare ourselves later in life to, to be in a position where we can serve others and, and travel and be with our children and, and help out. Right now we're getting ready to build a new home, so that's both stressful and awesome at the same time and just so fun to have things to look forward to. So life looks absolutely amazing. Well, awesome. Thank you, Thurman. We appreciate the time that you've given us and all the advice uh, wisdom. It was awesome to have you with us. Appreciate what you guys are doing. Keep it up. You're making a difference and uh, just really excited that you had me on. So appreciate it.